Welcome. This is Past Caring, the first episode of a new podcast from the Library and Archive at the Royal College of Nursing, the RCN. I'm Frances Reed, and I work on the RCN's public events and exhibitions. Our aim is to shout loudly about the incredible and essential work that nurses do now and throughout the centuries. So this is a podcast that uses history to understand how we think about health and care today. Over the past year, COVID has meant we've had to keep our doors shut, but you can still visit us virtually. Just search RCN Library and we've put loads of exhibitions and events online. One of the things we've been doing in the last few months is revisiting some of our exhibitions and talking to nurses, historians and others about some of the themes and ideas that seem especially relevant now. We begin with our 2018 exhibition about, you guessed it, pandemics. A disease outbreak is described as a pandemic when it spreads over a very large area, crossing international boundaries. In 2018, we had no idea exactly what the next one might be, even though many experts we spoke to at the time knew something could happen at any point. The exhibition drew together objects from some of the disease outbreaks from the past. The 1918 H1N1, or Spanish flu pandemic as it's known, to SARS nearly 20 years ago, as well as outbreaks that may seem like history to some of us now, but are still very much ongoing, like Ebola and HIV. Mysterious acronyms like PPE, personal protective equipment, so familiar to us now, had to be fully explained in our exhibition labels. Mary Beth Heffernan is a professor at Occidental College in Los Angeles and an artist. She responded to the Ebola crisis in West Africa in 2014, with a project designed to transform the often alienating impact of personal protective equipment. She created photographic portraits of the healthcare workers underneath the masks and the visors that could be fixed to the front of their hazmat suits so patients could see the faces of those caring for them. Mary Beth donated some of these portraits for display in our exhibition, and some of those portraits are now held in the RCN archive. I was so pleased to catch up with Mary Beth again and to hear how her project began when every news report she was seeing at that time seemed to focus on these frightening hazmat suits. When I read these news reports and even read healthcare worker narratives about how frightening the PPE were, I wondered if a portrait might be able to mitigate that fear because the fear was preventing people from seeking healthcare. And so I had a suspicion that a portrait might be able to punch above its weight in helping people see that it was their community, their fellow nurses and physicians who were behind those frightening suits, who were human themselves and wanting to care for them. So can you tell us a bit about what it looks like for listeners? So I've kind of I'm imagining the portraits that you made and they're pasted to the front. They're kind of they're not huge. They're small squares um, just on the chest of the hazmat suit. Sure. Um, I envisioned these, say, postcard sized photos that were printed on mailing label stock. So plain white uh, in the U.S. It's four by five inch 
10 centimeters by about 13 centimeter mailing labels that would stick directly to the PPE and then could be thrown away with the disposable PPE. So once I started you know, doing the research into, say, the psychological effects of source isolation and of patient responses to PPE, and also the workflows of the Ebola treatment unit, I realized that the affixing a soft, flexible, single-use photo printed on a mailing label would do the trick. And then if I remember from some of the imagery, uh, some were already personalizing their PPE by writing and drawing on it. Is that right? That's right. Um, when I started looking into the project, I saw examples of smiley faces or stick figures drawn in magic marker directly on the PPE. I even saw a physician print out a crude black and white, maybe photocopy version of her own portrait and duct tape it to the front of her suit. So there obviously was a need, people saw a need to humanize the PPE. And I think it's a rather intuitive gesture. I love what you said there about it being an intuitive approach. I think that's really nice. And something else that I thought a bit about when I was reading about your project was that it was almost like art as something that helped to solve a problem. And something that you said at the talk you gave for us as part of the program, actually, in 2018, was that there was a focus on combating the spread of disease, quite rightly, but less so on treating the patient. Can you say a bit more about your art as something that helped to solve that problem? Uh, well, yes. I think one of the things that I've grown to understand and had a sense of from the start was that there is a social and cultural dimension to health and that social gestures have physiological outcomes. And so I sensed, and the medical research supported this, that that a positive social gesture could have physiological effects, could have beneficial effects. And now I understand that uh, warmth, that healthcare worker warmth, has the capacity to activate a patient's healing mechanisms, which is also known as the placebo effect. That sounds kind of cynical, the term, the <laughs> placebo effect, but it is an activation of a patient's own healing mechanism. And yeah. and so that's what I was hoping to do with these portraits. And I also remember you telling me about some method acting scenarios that you did with your students at your college to test out the project. And I think you did you have students serving food at an event with uh, hazmat suits on and without, is that right? I did. Before I went to Liberia, the college, Occidental College, asked me to give a lecture on the project. And I thought that a way to have a an impact on the audience was for them to directly experience what it was like to see someone in full Ebola PPE and to see someone caring for them. I solicited help from three theater students, and I gave them a lecture on the research supporting the project so that they were collaborators in a, in a certain way. So they agreed to don PPE and then 
at the reception offer food to the audience as they filed in. And so this was with the PPE without the portrait. And then about halfway through the reception, I affixed their PPE portraits to the outside of their Tyvek hoods. And then after the talk was over, they doffed the PPE in front of the audience. And their response was uh, like palpable. It was almost like a kind of physical relief. Then the audience and the students discussed what it was like for them to be in PPE and how they perceived their role as carers. They said when they didn't have the portrait on that they felt very separate from the people that they were serving and that they saw fear and reticence in the people's eyes, that they were less likely to accept their offer of food and drinks. But as soon as they wore the portraits, people responded kindly to them. They responded warmly. They accepted the food and the drink that they had on offer and returned that warmth. And then the students said that they felt less isolated themselves. They felt less cut off from the audience. And so it was a really powerful example of the PP portraits, even though we were, it was a kind of method acting it had a real effect on the people that were experiencing it. It's really interesting how they, how you notice that people were less likely to accept food and drink from the students. And then when you translate that similar circumstance into, into a healthcare environment, how likely is it that people would reject healthcare from somebody that they can't see? You've hit the nail on the head. I also remember when we were writing content for the exhibition, we were very aware that we would have to explain what PPE is to people um, and what that acronym means and what it looks like. Now, it seems like everybody knows what this means. Um, It's been in the news almost every day. How has your project been applied this year and how has it changed? Well, what a difference a year makes, right? (laughs) Right. Indeed, I I do not have to explain what PPE means anymore. As soon as the pandemic, uh, news of the pandemic started filtering in from China in January, I had a sense that there would be a need for PPE portraits, but I just didn't know how to reach out and bridge the language and cultural and political gap between myself and China. But soon enough, the need for the project was here in in the United States. And in either late February or early March, Katie Brown Johnson, an implementation research scientist at Stanford Medical School, Uh, She reached out to me and said, we need this here and we need it now. Katie had heard about the project five years ago after the Ebola epidemic, and she it dropped down that this would be needed right now. And and so I quickly drew up a set of guidelines and created a PowerPoint presentation with tips for creating the PP portraits and the photographs and the labels. And she had it up and running in a matter of days. From there, the word started getting out and folks just started contacting me. Wow. So it's really taken on 
I guess, a role that you would never have expected for this year. You know, in the intervening years between the Ebola epidemic and the COVID pandemic, I always hoped that the PPE Portrait Project could become best practice for any patient who saw their healthcare worker primarily hidden by a mask. But there was no perceived sense of urgency on the part of the healthcare workers in the hospitals. And it wasn't till the COVID pandemic that I think the full the effects of what it means to live and experience other people behind a mask really became manifest. I do think that the face is essential in creating trust. It's not the only thing, our behavior and tone of voice and gesture and all kinds of other cues are key to establishing trust. But without the face, I think that there's a sense that someone is uncaring or it's harder to provide those subtle cues that you care about a person, a person you're caring for, and to engender trust. And that trust, I think, is is crucial in patient receiving care uh, or being receptive to care. And, and that's essential, isn't it, for the nursing role as a role that is to do with care, it's about relationships, it's about emotions, um, as well as clinical practice. So for, say, a, another healthcare or medical profession, it's about delivering medical care. But nursing is more complex than that, that is wrapped up in everything you were just saying about about how we look at each other and how we respond to each other and hold each other. Absolutely. And I think, you know, there's research from all kinds of angles that shows that clinician warmth activates a, a patient's healing mechanism. And that's true for, especially for nurses, uh, but also for doctors and other providers, that they have physiological effects. So it's not just some lovely window dressing, but it actively changes a patient's body in their response to pain um, and their perception of pain, and it physically changes their bodies. Mary Beth Heffernan. And you can find out more about her project at ppeportrait.org. Rose Gallagher is a nurse who knows a lot about PPE. She's the Royal College of Nursing Professional Lead for Infection Prevention and Control and has been providing specialist advice throughout COVID-19. She's no stranger to epidemics and pandemics. Before COVID, she gave nursing advice for the Ebola outbreak in 2014 and Clostridium difficile, that's a bacterial bowel infection, at Stoke Mandeville Hospital in 2003. Rose helped us with our pandemic exhibition and when I spoke to her, we began by talking about one exhibit that really stands out. It's a newspaper article from the Nursing Times, December 1918, and it's called Careful Influenza Nursing. It features photographs of a group of nurses at Hampstead Military Hospital. There's a shot of them sitting all together without their face masks, and then another one of them all in exactly the same position with their face masks on. 
The article mentions that these new mandatory masks and overalls for the nursing staff have kept the women in the sewing room very busy. What's really striking is that these masks these nurses are wearing look just like the ones we've all been making and wearing ourselves this year. I looked at that picture and if it wasn't for the clothes, the types of uniforms they were wearing, actually it it could have been today. Obviously with social distancing we probably wouldn't have sat so close to each other but the principle is exactly the same. So history is almost certainly repeating itself. The nurses are also wearing large full-length overalls. The article talks about wooden partitions between the beds and we're seeing not dissimilar things now in our shops and pubs and restaurants with these perspex barriers. How effective would these measures have been, these infection control measures in 1918 have been? Because they're very similar to what we're seeing in everyday spaces now. They are, but I don't think we can compare like with like. So our overall understanding of the transmission of influenza and now coronavirus is much more advanced than the knowledge that people had access to in 1919. Today, although we're dealing with coronavirus, not influenza, we have a greater depth of knowledge and understanding and evidence around how droplets and aerosols are spread. So in a hospital setting, they had wards during the 1918 pandemic. We still have wards of coronaviruses, so cohorting is still undertaken and it's still a very useful strategy. But the PPE certainly is where advancements have really come into their own with that focus on the protection of the healthcare worker in particular. Can you explain a little bit about cohorting? So cohorting is when you bring a group of patients together It could be a a small number of patients, so say four or six in a bay, or as with my experience of Clostridium difficile and and also MRSA, which was very common in the early 2000s as well, we would put people that are known to be either be carrying a particular organism or to have a specific infection together in one place because it's easier to nurse them. By bringing people together, it reduces the pressure on single rooms elsewhere in the hospital. So how do you deal with infectious diseases that we don't know a lot about and we might not have a huge amount of skill or experience in dealing with? So, for example, nurses in 1918 might have been receiving patients without fully understanding, well, they were receiving patients without fully understanding what they were dealing with. So it must have been scary for those nurses as the staff members who are seeing these symptoms emerge in the early days. Do you see this happening across different kinds of outbreaks of disease? Today unless it was infection X, that we don't know what it is that we're dealing with, which could occur in the very early stages of a cluster or local outbreak of infection that is starting to emerge. But if the infection has spread and we're in the situation where we have either an epidemic, an emerging or confirmed pandemic, we would probably know what we were dealing with. So we would know what precautions we would need to take in order to interrupt the transmission of infection. So the sorts of things that we would be looking at is what is the main route of transmission? Is this infection spread through the respiratory route? Therefore, we need to put in place respiratory precautions to protect other patients and healthcare workers. Is it spread through blood and body fluids? So that would 
bring into play standard precautions, so gloves and aprons for, for contact with blood and body fluids. Um, is it spread through um, other means? So in the case of Clostridium difficile, that was mostly diarrhoea and contamination of the environment. So we would need to understand the mode of transmission in order to put in place the precautions and the necessary personal protective equipment that is required. And that may be what we use normally in our business as usual services, or it could be additional PPE as we have had during this pandemic. So part of that PPE is the FFP3 N95 mask. So we started talking about the cloth masks that nurses were wearing in 1918. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about that mask and why the FFP3 N95, which some of us have, well, more of us are hearing about these days. Why is that mask important? What's special about that? The face coverings, which the public are wearing today and nurses when they're going about their normal daily lives, and the fluid repellent surgical face masks, which healthcare workers wear in the healthcare environment, that is designed to prevent or to protect, I should say, your face from people coughing and droplets going into your face. So it's a physical barrier to droplets. The face covering represents really the sort of very baseline form of protection for the general public and and nurses in their own lives. The FFP3 and N95 masks that you referred to represent a form of respiratory protection that's used in slightly different circumstances. And these are used when we need to undertake what's called aerosol generating procedures. So if I was to cough and I was to produce something when I coughed, it would probably travel about a metre. And because it's quite heavy, it would drop to the floor. But aerosols are much lighter, much finer, and can therefore travel greater distances. And because of their size, they're very easy to inhale and they can travel deep down into the lungs of the individual and potentially cause infection if there are virus particles present So we need to protect healthcare workers working, for example, in intensive care units, in surgical environments where patients are anaesthetised and other places from these aerosols. Do you think for nurses, wearing masks affects the way that they can care for their patients? Because a lot of nursing is hidden skills and it's about establishing trust with scared patients. Mm -hmm. Do you think covering their faces makes that relationship difficult? There are some practical difficulties for some staff and some patients with wearing masks, certainly. So those that need to lip read are an obvious example. So within hospital settings, certainly that's an issue. The other thing I would say is that as nurses, obviously we read people's facial expressions. So somebody may be in pain. They may be anxious or there may be some other trigger through facial expressions that we would use to help us approach that person or to think about how we might talk to them or or even to trigger a response from us. So if they are wearing a face covering or a face mask, it can be difficult. Um, But likewise, patients can't see our facial expressions. So I'm told you can tell when someone's laughing through their eyes. But it it makes it more challenging. And and we know through the Ebola work, for example, that being able to recognise an individual nurse, you know, and and their name 
was really important to the team as much to the patients because we can become invisible if we're all wearing the same uniform we can all look the same so that identification that personal contact is really important. You are of course a nurse and you're in an advisory role for COVID-19 this year Previously, when there was the Clostridium difficile outbreak at Stoke Mandeville, you were very much on the front line managing infection control there. So as a nurse, how has this year felt different for you as a professional? It's been hugely different. It's even been hugely different from my advisory capacity with Ebola and MERS and and H1N1 in 2009 as well, the swine flu pandemic. I have really missed my clinical practice during this pandemic I have felt very torn around my role at the Royal College and the need to support my colleagues in practice I know I'm doing a you know a a necessary job here at the RCN and it is required but I have really missed my clinical practice it's been a very different experience this time to the H1M1 pandemic response as well that may be part of the reason why it's felt so challenging because it has felt that nursing has been very disconnected in the pandemic response this time previously the Royal College of Nursing myself and two of my colleagues were part of what was called the PICO clinical subgroup where we sat around the table with medical royal colleges to discuss the development of guidance the implementation of guidance to look at and consider issues that might affect it. That simply didn't happen this time. And that disconnection from nursing, which is the largest part of the workforce and the part of the workforce, including midwives, that are with people 24 hours a day, to me was very, very difficult because then we were expected to be able to translate that guidance into practice, even though we hadn't been part of developing it. So very, very challenging. And I hope that that's one of the lessons for the future. Rose Gallagher. You're listening to Past Caring, a podcast from the Royal College of Nursing Library and Archive. And if you've been clapping for nurses on your doorstep, find out more about the RCN's Fair Pay for Nursing campaign at rcn.org.uk or follow the hashtag FairPayForNursing on Twitter. It's extraordinary to think that nursing voices have been disconnected from the pandemic response this time. There are no nurses on the Committee for the Government Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies, or SAGE as we know it. And yet it's nurses who are the ones at the front of COVID-19 saving lives. Of course, nurses have always been on the front line of tackling new diseases, whether it's influenza in 1918 or the emergence of HIV and AIDS in the 1970s and 80s. In the last conversation in this episode, we're going to be discussing what we can learn from one pandemic to another. Jason Warriner is a nurse director at the charity Cranston. Jason's background is in public health nursing, primarily sexual health, HIV and homelessness. He also volunteers as healthcare manager for Crisis at Christmas. Mark Honigsbaum is a medical historian who specialises in the history of epidemics and pandemics. His books were invaluable during the research for our exhibition, including his latest, The Pandemic Century, 100 Years of Panic, Hysteria and Hubris. 
First of all, I asked Mark about the role of frontline nurses when symptoms of something unknown begin to appear in our hospitals and communities. It is striking that whenever we are presented with a new outbreak of an unexpected pathogen, the people who flag it up first, of course, are clinicians, doctors and nurses who are presented with these unusual patients in hospital settings typically. And because at that, at that stage, not very much is known about the pathogen, that's often the, the most dangerous and risky time of all, right? So before COVID, we saw this with SARS in 2002, when people who are sick with SARS, unlike with COVID, you know, they weren't walking around with sort of asymptomatic infections. They very rapidly became ill. And because of that, they went straight to hospital. And what happened is that they spread the infection to, you know, doctors and nurses who treated them. And the result was, this is obviously before people knew how, you know, um, virulent and dangerous SARS was, uh, before people used, you know, really good barrier nursing controls. A lot, lot of nurses and doctors fell ill, and many of them died tragically. So that was true of one of the first victims of all of SARS, who was Carlo Urbani, who was a clinician and Italian parasitologist. But uh, his swift action in recognizing the pathogen meant that he warned the Vietnamese authorities, and Vietnam uh, escaped having an epidemic of SARS, which wasn't the case, of course, for Hong Kong and parts of Toronto. And if I remember right, was it St. Malabone Infirmary in London? Is that where uh, Spanish influenza first sort of mm. materialised in 1918? St. Malabone Infirmary is a very good example of how nurses often bear the brunt of epidemics. The Spanish flu had first presented in the spring as a mild illness. Typically, you know, it first appeared at British Army camps on the Western Front. But when large numbers of troops began returning to London, one of the hardest hit wards was at St. Marylebone Infirmary, which was a voluntary hospital, uh, a poor law hospital that treated really the chronic poor of North Kensington. But it was a very well organized hospital, and there were great efforts to protect nurses. So the medical superintendent at the time, a doctor called Dr. Basil Hood, realized how dangerous influenza was and tried to persuade his nurses to uh, wear um, gauze face masks and, you know, to, to take precautions, especially when their colleagues began to fall ill. And, you know, they were presented with having to nurse, you know, other nurses. Uh, and it was quite moving, actually, because Dr. Hood kept a diary of that whole period. And he said that when it came to nursing one of their own, the nurses were very reluctant to wear these masks because they thought that their colleagues would see that as a, take that as a sign, read it as a sign of how serious their condition was. So many of the nurses refused to do that when tending you know, another nursing sister. Uh, and quite often they then also uh, contracted the virus. Gosh, yeah. Um, Jason, your background is in public health nursing, specifically HIV and sexual health. Of course, HIV is a very different virus to an influenza um, or what we're seeing now. But in the early 1980s, even perhaps before, was there a similar situation with nurses being the ones who were seeing 
unusual symptoms emerging. Yeah, I mean, totally. If you look back at some of the history and stories, what nurses say around the early 1980s, they were at the forefront of the epidemic around HIV in England, whether that was in the sexual health clinics or through A&E departments or in general medical wards. So nurses were picking up on everything, but also they were one of the first groups to respond and start lobbying and wanting services specifically to people living with HIV. And remembering at that time, everybody was talking about AIDS and it was high on the agenda. You weren't sure about how it was transmitted, where it had come from who the disease was targeting. So there was a lot of a fear, anxiety, and nurses responded to it in a very professional way and drove a lot of the innovations forward from what they were seeing, what they were hearing, and especially in the big cities like London. But just because actually the cohort of patients in London was bigger than everywhere else, that people were in a position to see what was happening and respond and actually try and do something about it. Mm, and... I was speaking yesterday to Rose Gallagher and we were reflecting on an image that we used in the exhibition and it's of um, Hampstead nurses donning their fabric face masks and overalls and we were thinking about how today these face masks that the nurses are wearing in 1918 are not dissimilar to the ones that we are making at home and we have been making at home this year. Mark, you were saying that some of the nurses didn't want to wear these masks, particularly when caring for their colleagues. And then, Jason, in the early days of understanding HIV, there was a lot of misunderstanding around PPE and what should and should not be worn, wasn't there? Oh, yeah, total misunderstanding. And that misunderstanding and people's individual beliefs went on through the 1990s into the 2000s still. You know, and you still get stories now of people double-gloving, wearing masks, aprons when they don't need to, so that inappropriate use of PPE. But also in the early days, full PPE was needed because we were still learning about the virus, how it was transmitted. And, you know, that level of understanding was about protecting both the patient and the nurses and other members of the team who were providing care and treatment. The other thing that we showed in the exhibition that I'm interested to think about is quite a famous image, and it's an etching attributed to Temple West, made in 1803, I think. And it's a caricature of influenza, and it's a figure wearing a hat and a jacket, and there's a a crowd of physicians around him offering up their thanks for his visit to the country. And it illustrates how much in debt the medical profession should have been to flu, as it brings them plenty of business. And then this year, the message has been protect the NHS, support efforts in preventing our health services getting overrun. Mark, do pandemics affect public perception on the healthcare service and the staff of that time? Uh, Well, yes, I I I think they do, especially when, you know, we're presented with a pandemic that is affecting every section of society as COVID-19 is. I mean, we've seen, you know, the expressions of support for the NHS particularly at the height of the lockdown when everyone went outside on Thursday evenings to clap for carers, children painting these rainbow images, you know, to show that their support and praise for the NHS. I think what we've realised here is how important it is to have a functioning health system with the capacity to deal with these major crises. So I think if you want to think about, you know, the pandemic in wider terms, what sort of crisis is it? Is it actually a crisis caused by a virus 
Or is the crisis got more to do with the chronic underfunding of public health, of our health services, which have really got on for the last 10 years? After all, we wouldn't need to socially distance and stop the economy if we could be confident that the NHS wasn't going to be overwhelmed and, and be unable to cope with surges of you know, very ill elderly patients. So what this has really underlined for me is you know, the false economy, really, of you know, starving your health system of resources. I mean, you need a well-resourced health system. It's one of the bedrocks of modern liberal democratic states. Jason, does that ring true with you in terms of resourcing? Yes, in many ways. And um, for me, it's thinking about outside, outside the NHS. So during the pandemic, there's been a big focus on the NHS. But we need to look at the whole health and social care system, nursing homes, the role charities are playing. So it's a lot wider and also bringing it into the independent sector there. And it's about the resourcing of all that of care in all those settings. And for me, one of the underpinning things is what we're learning and seeing is how the chronic shortage of uh, underfunding in relation to public health services and the changes over the last 10 years in relation to that. And for me, when I'm always talking about public health, it's very much an invest to save approach. If you put the investment in and keep it sustained, you're saving the future by keeping people healthy and actually having the teams there to respond in a pandemic. So your infection control nurses, your public health response teams. So having all of that available, it does make a big difference. And one of the things with me working outside the NHS in the charity sector, it's been a slightly different experience than in the uh, people who work in the NHS during the pandemic. And whether that's actually being able to access resources such as PPE through to way people suddenly think, wow, this is bigger than the NHS. What are you doing as part of the pandemic? And you start having those conversations and people have realised that actually COVID-19 is affecting all parts of the health and social care system. Yeah. I think that's a very important point. Um, I just very quickly add to that. Um, you know, I think one of the shortcomings or the consequences of our short-term thinking is exactly what Jason was just saying about the wider public health. And you know, I'm also including you know the role of local authorities and councils and GPs in this. It just seems crazy to me that we bypassed all that expertise at local level and centralised test and trace and contact tracing in the public health authority, and then we privatised it. The, the most efficient and you know, cheapest, really, way of, of, of dealing with these emergencies is to deal with them as much as possible at a local level. But that means equipping the local authorities with funding and also you know, diagnostic and laboratory services. So you don't have to wait three days for a result to come back from some laboratory miles from the point of infection. And I think what Mark's just highlighting there is the politics of healthcare and across the four countries of the UK, how different it is. And especially in England, where we went for this sudden centralised approach, where if it had been at a local devolved or regional level, I think we would have seen a different response to testing, tracing and managing of the pandemic and resources. And so thinking historically, I guess, so in terms of something like Spanish flu, for example, and moving forward to HIV and AIDS, how heard have nurses' voices been in different public health crises, do you think? Well, I would say 
very loudly but very differently. I think with HIV in the 1980s and the 1990s, it galvanised a group of nurses who were able to engage with different organisations and actually push the boundaries of care and make their voices heard in a very, very different way. And that's one of the things about HIV nursing. Nurses and midwives who've worked in that area are not afraid of pushing the boundaries and breaking the rules because it was a totally different way of nursing. It, you know, it was very holistic and it was something new what we were dealing with. And often with people who were marginalised in society at that time. And then springing forward now to 2020 and COVID, if you look where the voice of nursing has been used, it's used, we're sort of using it now more around some examples of safe staffing, talking about burnout, retention of nurses, but how social media has been used around all of this, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, other social media channels. People have been able to voice their opinion, their views and their experiences in a very, very different way. And I often think if we'd have had all the social media stuff in the 1980s, mm. how would it have panned out with HIV? But also if we didn't have had all the social media and technology now, what would it have been like trying to manage the COVID pandemic? Yeah, just very quickly on that point, in 1918, of course, the medical profession was a very male-dominated profession. Arguably, you could say it still is today, but the difference is in 1918, it was very hard for a woman who was interested in healthcare to even qualify, never mind work as a doctor. So I think that by default, many women who could have been doctors were forced into nursing. But of course, when the flu came along, because so many medical personnel, so many doctors and nurses had been called to the front, there was a real shortage on the home front. So it was very much all hands to pump and all expertise was needed. So I think that in a funny way, epidemics and pandemics provide an opportunity for nurses to show their value particularly when, as in 19, there wasn't an awful lot that medical science could do for someone with um, a virulent viral infection. We didn't even have ventilators, never mind antibiotics. Yeah, and just thinking about what Mark's just said, sort of showing the value of nursing there. In COVID in 2020, I think it showed the value of all nurses and midwives, whatever specialism they work in. For example, it's been focused a lot around acute care, intensive care. But actually, if you think about it, the other side way, community nurses have responded and health visitors to make sure that child immunisations are still taking place through to nurses who work in travel health services. Mark, as an historian, is it helpful to compare different public health crises through the centuries? And can we look to one to teach us something about another? Uh, yes. Well, I mean, you know, the clearest example of that is what I was saying um, earlier about SARS in 2002. And this also goes, I suppose, for Ebola in 2014. You know, it's often in healthcare settings that these new emerging infectious diseases have an opportunity to be amplified and spread more widely. So I suppose that's the negative side. But on the positive side, of course, you can see nurses and other frontline health workers as kind of sentinels. These are our best and earliest warning systems. So it was when Médecins Sans Frontières in southeastern Guinea, they had a malaria treatment clinic, and that's where they ended up seeing some of the first Ebola patients. And they were the first to say, this doesn't look like malaria or any of the other diseases that are endemic to West Africa. We think this is new. We think it could be Ebola. 
Jason, is there still a lot that we don't know about HIV? And what can we learn from our response to this infection that might help us in tackling other diseases? Yeah, I mean, we're still learning about HIV every day, whether that's around HIV and ageing, possibility of vaccines, through to actually the work that's going on for aiming for year 2030 where zero infections so yeah we're still learning so much and one of the things i always put in perspective is if you compare hiv to other specialities you know we're probably 35 years old where if you look at cancer heart disease around that other infectious diseases so the learning goes there and i think this is going to apply to covid as well we've got a lot more technology available today and it's how we use that to shape the future and pulling all the learning out around COVID and recognising that, you know, if you speak to a lot of people, they just view COVID as something that affects the lungs. It's a virus that affects the lungs, where it's actually, it's multisystemic, it's multi-organ. We're still learning the long-term effects. If you look back to HIV, everybody just thought, oh, it affects the immune system, where it doesn't, it affects the whole body. So... It's pulling all that learning together there and taking it forward. So there's a lot of comparisons, but also a lot of differences as well. If you look at way HIV is transmitted, way uh, COVID is transmitted. So it's looking at those differences from my perspective, all those similarities. And this is going to shape our response in the future to any pandemic. And for me, I think it's removed that level of complacency, which I think a lot of people and a lot of us in public health were sort of starting to experience. Because every year we've been predicting a big flu pandemic, pushing the flu vaccinations, getting people, you know, all the clinics immunised, and it never happened. Then totally out of left field, we've had COVID come through, that it's nothing we expected on this scale, we couldn't vaccinate against it. So it's learning something for me about how we prepare for pandemics, and also then what we're learning now in the middle of it, but how we come out of it in the future. And it's difficult to predict what the future is going to be because a lot of people are viewing we've got a vaccine now, that's the answer, and we should be sorted in the next six months. Whereas actually, what's the reality of going to be around that? And, you know, are we talking about another year realistically? That's when we may be sort of coming out the other side of it. But we don't know, you know, will there be something else thrown? So it's kind of to look for those curveballs at the moment. Jason Warriner and Mark Honigsbaum. Thank you for listening to me, Francis Reed, and our very first episode of the Past Caring podcast from the RCN Library and Archive. In episode two, we'll be looking at women's health and how nursing, as a predominantly female profession, has challenged widespread myths about women's bodies and minds. I'll be talking to Sabadra Das about Mary Stopes, hearing how one nurse has used ring pessary hoopla with nursing teams, and we'll be taking a wider view with historian Tracy Lauren. To make sure you don't miss out on that episode, subscribe to Past Caring wherever you get your podcasts.